Good morning, everybody. This is another edition of the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPLA.com as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. A lot of stuff we're going to get into in the world of baseball, sports, and unifying America. Just a reminder, if you're interested and you want to be part of the program, you can comment on either the Periscope or the Facebook live feed or give the show a call. The number is 732-364-3598. So we're going to get into a couple interesting topics, but most importantly, some uh, polarizing topics. And we're going to talk about that today. Like I said, I want your input. I want your opinion. I want you to contribute anything you have to bring to the table in regards to the program today. We're going to talk a little baseball later on. We're going to talk a little Eric Reed. We're also going to talk a little bit about P.K. Subban, uh, perhaps a little bit of Sonny Gray, but we're going to start out by talking about something that is kind of a little bit of an issue that I see happening in the NFL, and there's a little bit of a comparison to what's been going on in that of Major League Baseball. We're looking for that next leader, whether it's a manager in Major League Baseball or a head coach in a National Football League, and it looks like their job or their responsibilities or what they're expecting to do is kind of being reduced from what it was years ago. And I always make the comparison to um, Billy Martin when he was hired as a manager, whether it was the Minnesota Twins, the Texas Rangers, the Detroit Tigers, the New York Yankees, the Oakland Athletics, the New York Yankees, the New York Yankees, the New York Yankees, or the New York Yankees. It's, it seemed like every time that he was brought in, <clears throat> he was expected to be the guy that was going, going to turn the franchise around. Now, of course, when it comes to sports, it's not just the coach or the manager of a particular team that's responsible for the construction of the roster. Of course, usually there's people in the front office, whether it's a general manager or a team president or people that are expected to be more in charge of the day-to-day -day operations in regards to players on a particular team. That's all That's all important and that's all needs to be considered. But if you think of the likes of a Billy Martin, you realize that he was brought in many times to turn around the culture of a team and to get more wins out of a particular team than had happened before. And he did that in Minnesota. He did that in Detroit. He did that in Texas. Of course, he did that with the Yankees. He made the Oakland Athletics better. But that type of manager or coach doesn't look like it exists today. And most importantly, it's it's one of those things where it doesn't look like it's even being looked for now. And we've talked ad nauseum about the change in the responsibility of a Major League Baseball manager, which it's different. It's different than it used to be. You know, Aaron Boone inherits a really good New York Yankees team but is not expected to be the difference in regards to changing, you know, maybe a little bit in the locker room, maybe be a little more positive, but he, he's not going to go in there and get stuff out of players that they can't get out of themselves. And if you look at the likes of different major league managers that have been hired, not just this offseason, but last offseason and offseasons in the past, teams in baseball are not necessarily looking for that big-time X's and O's guy, that person that has that track record. In fact, the majority of Major League managers in baseball are first-timers. In fact, one-third of all Major League managers are first-timers. And you're seeing that transition over to the NFL. And the reason that I find this interesting is because in the National Football League, 
it, it's not supposed to be a person that's supposed to have one little task. The value of a head coach in the National Football League is extremely important because you're not just hiring that person to be considered the head coach or when there's a press conference and they're speaking, having a caption, their name and underneath it, head coach of whatever team. They're responsible for assembling a staff. They're responsible for so many more different things than a major league baseball manager is responsible for. And you look at the coaching changes in the National Football League, the Freddie Kinchins, the Matt LaFleurs, the Cliff Kingsbury, you know, you're even looking at the possibility and now probability that Zach Taylor, the quarterback coach of the Los Angeles Rams, is going to get a job as a head coach for the Cincinnati Bengals. Now, you, we've talked about it, the possibility or the probability that most of these coaches are getting head coach jobs in the NFL because of their ability to have some cohesion with their quarterback. But the job is much bigger than that. And it's not just, you know, you can't just bring in somebody that is good with a quarterback and expect them to be able to run an entire team. Not only that, but a coach in the National Football League is a figurehead. It's the person that, yes, they are running everything and they do have all the responsibility that, you know, it's claimed that they have, but they're in charge of putting a staff in there. And that staff is very integral in the productivity of a particular roster. And if that doesn't happen, obviously it all goes to the head coach. And we've seen it happen in the National Football League. Quick decisions that are made to bring in inexperienced head coaches have not resulted in these coaches lasting long or being stuck around or being involved with their teams for very long. You're seeing Steve Wilkes get fired after one year, Vance Joseph after two years, Adam Gase who gets the job with the New York Jets Yes, he may have had more of an impact in him losing his job than the owner did. You can go out there and you say things you shouldn't say to the owner. You're probably going to lose your job. But you're seeing the, the longevity of a coach in the National Football League not be that long. And I think that's part of the reason why teams are trying to gravitate towards this one thing. The connection between the quarterback and the coach. It worked with Bill Belichick. It seems to have worked for years with Sean Payton and Drew Brees. And there's many other examples, Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes. You look at every good team and you think of the coach and you think of the quarterback, and they're kind of, you know, you know, hand in hand in regards to the cohesion, and that spreads out to the rest of the football team. But what I don't know, and maybe it's the NFL and NFL teams individually that are all losing it or losing the point at the same time, but it's you know, winning and losing in the National Football League is a lot, of, lot deeper than just a coach and quarterback. And some people may disagree with that. They may say that there's no way you could win a Super Bowl in the National Football League unless you have a top-line quarterback, and it's probably true. It seems to make some sense. I do believe that up to a certain point you need to have a legitimate quality and probably superstar quarterback if you're going to win Super Bowls in the National Football League. But you look at Nick Foles last year. He's not considered a top five or a top ten quarterback in the National Football League. And the Eagles won themselves a Super Bowl. So there are exceptions to this rule that we put out there. We always we always try to say, hey, everything has to be a certain way. You know, you have to have a great coach. You have to have a great quarterback to win a Super Bowl. I don't know if that's necessarily 100% true. It's important. 
It's important to not run the likes of a Jake DeLome out there. It's important to have something that's a little bit better than the likes of a Josh McCown or a Ryan Fitzpatrick or going back you know, in time, you look at some of the likes of a Kent Graham or a Dave Brown. There's been plenty of NFL quarterbacks that just haven't been very good, and teams, for whatever reason, decided to overlook that and not make it as important as it really is. But that's a different topic. We're talking about the coach right here. The fact that the coach is going to have this cohesion with this quarterback, and all of a sudden the team is going to go out there and win a Super Bowl. Now, the coach's resume doesn't even matter. Matt LaFleur's resume was not very good. And it's no fault to him. He just didn't have a ton of experience. He was on a staff a couple of years ago with Sean McVay. And, of course, Sean McVay gets a ton of credit because of what he's done with Jared Goff and the fact that the Los Angeles Rams, who I'm going to talk about in a little bit when we get to our NFL picks, are up at the level as they are. Everybody wants to do the same thing. And for Zach Taylor, who happens to be the quarterback coach of the Los Angeles Rams, for him to get a job or be about to get a job as the head coach of the Cincinnati Bengals, I don't know what they're thinking by doing this. I don't know what the Green Bay Packers are thinking by just saying, all right, you know, Matt LaFleur, a couple of years ago, we was working with Sean McVay last year. He was the offensive coordinator of the Tennessee Titans, who, by the way, had the 29th worst offense out of 32 teams in the National Football League. But, hey, he might be a good quarterback whisperer. He might be able to have some cohesion with Aaron Rodgers. So let's hire him. Baker Mayfield did very well with Freddie Kitchens as his offensive coordinator. All of a sudden, you're dismissing, if you're the Cleveland Browns, what Greg Williams did as the head coach or the interim head coach over the last eight games of the season because the team responded. It didn't necessarily respond specifically to Kitchens. It responded to Greg Williams as well. So how much do the Cleveland Browns take a step back with Greg Williams not involved in the process anymore? But it just seems to be, all right, you know, this is working, so let's everybody do the same thing. It's basically a summary of the country that we live in. <clears throat> if something's working or somebody does something right, everybody wants to duplicate it. They think, of, you know, we go do the same thing, it's going to work just as well as it did for the people before but it's so hard if you're a National Football League head coach to be expected to just have a relationship with your quarterback, make sure you're on the same page, and forget about the rest of the roster. You better, and each one of these teams that are hiring that you know quarterback whisperer, they better make sure that that coach brings with him a staff of qualified assistants that are going to run the offense and the defense and in most cases, you're going to probably expect that offensive guru or that quarterback whisperer to run a particular offense. And if they do, you, you better have a backup plan. You better have somebody that's there working with you because you have a whole roster that you're responsible for. Not just the quarterback. And you can see the changes in Major League Baseball and a Major League manager right now. His job is to be a freaking guidance counselor. Make sure that all the personalities are working out well in the clubhouse. We're going to write out the lineup for you. We're going to tell you when to make a pitching change. It's pretty asinine. And you know what? I don't know how long it's going to take the NFL and NFL teams to realize that this in thing at the moment you know, may not necessarily work out in the long run. And we're going to find out in 
two to three years when these quarterback whisperers who have been hired as head coaches in the National Football League, yes, one of them may work out, a couple of them may work out. You know what? Every one of them might work out. They may all develop that cohesion and that relationship with that quarterback and every single one of these quarterbacks might be great. And you know what? If that's the case, that's great for the National Football League. Because you're talking about a league that already has some parity to it. In each given season, you could expect any one of the 32 teams in the National Football League, if things go right, they could build some momentum and potentially make a push for a playoff spot. And you know what? As a fan, as an objective fan, not an individual fan, not a fan that is so hell-bent on one particular team, but for fan and using the word in plural to speak to everybody, it would be great if you could be a fan of any team in the National Football League and have that team have a chance to win the Super Bowl. So what I'm hoping for is, hey, every single one of these coaching hires work out. Every, every single one of these quarterback whispers get through to their quarterback. And that's going to make every single game that we watch in the year of 2019 going into 2020 more interesting and a possibility that anybody could win. But I think I'm reaching when I'm saying that. And what you're probably going to see over the course of the next couple seasons is people that are elevated into certain positions as head coaches that probably shouldn't have been. And you've seen it happen with defensive coaches over the last decade. How many defensive whizzes that were running defenses on very good teams ended up getting nowhere as head coaches and all of a sudden are back as defensive coordinators? You're probably looking at the next generation of offensive coordinators right now that are getting a chance to be head coaches in the National Football League. I bet you one or two of these coaches will be great offensive coordinators over the course of the next decade. They're just probably not going to make it as head coaches in the National Football League. This copyright and broadcast is authorized under internet rights granted by the World Wide Web and is solely for your entertainment of our audience. Any publication, reproduction, or other use of the pictures, descriptions, and accounts of the show without the express written consent of the Passball Show, JohnPaley.com, and JohnPaley LLC is prohibited. Any commercial or other use of the program, such as by charging admission for its showing, is similarly prohibited. So, you know, you got the NFL and the NFLPA both in agreement that Carolina Panthers safety Eric Reed was not randomly drug tested more than any other player in the league. And listen, you, know, you can take whatever side you want on it because there is a certain spot that was very unfair to the likes of Eric Reed, and that was the fact that he was, because he was outspoken when it came to the protesting of the national anthem, he was essentially blackballed and I don't know if there was collusion behind it, but you're talking about a top-line safety in the National Football League for the San Francisco 49ers, all of a sudden not able to get a job in a league. Now, that's not fair. That shouldn't happen. You shouldn't, no matter how outspoken you are about some, something or anything, no matter what the issue is, it shouldn't get to the point where it keeps you from being able to have a job. Obviously, the same thing has happened with Colin Kaepernick. All opinions aside in regards to this issue, Eric Reed has decided to take it a step further by claiming that he was drug tested more times than he should have been over the 12 weeks that are 13 weeks that he was available over the course of the last National Football League season. Now, this to me should be cut and dry. It's either he was or he wasn't. 
Sometimes we want to throw our opinions out there and say that, hey, Eric Reed and his lawyers feel one way, and now the NFL and the NFLPA feel a different way, and it's okay to just have a difference in opinion. When you can back stuff up with facts, that's when they need to come out. Because we live in a world, unfortunately, that's obsessed with opinion over fact. Now, if you have facts to back up an argument, this is the time where the NFL and the NFLPA, if they're putting out statements saying that Eric Reed's claims are wrong, this is when you go to your research, you go to the facts of the players that were tested for drugs over the course of the last National Football League season, and you put those facts right in front of Eric Reed's face. Now, if, if, if for whatever reason, the information isn't backing up what you're saying, then you look bad. So if the NFL and the NFLPA is not willing to do a couple things, using their computer algorithm system, now they say it's random, they say you know it goes right up, all right, whatever players come up in a random algorithm get tested, you may get tested once, you may get tested twice. I'm sure there's some cases of some players that are getting tested three times, maybe four times over the course of an NFL season. And I don't think that would be surprising if that was the case. But with these computer, computer algorithms, no matter how it's determined, there is a list somewhere of the results and what comes up and what players were tested once, what players were not tested at all, what players were tested two, three, and four times. And with that, guess what? You're going to be able to figure out how many times Eric Reed's name came up in the algorithm. And once that happens, you know exactly how many times Eric Reed was tested over the course of the National Football League season. And if the goal, if you're the NFL and if you're the NFLPA, is to avoid a potential discrimination lawsuit by Eric Reed and his attorneys, this is the time where you produce this type of information. There's going to be an actual number of tests that were performed, a drug test performed on Eric Reed over the course of the last season. The NFL and the NFLPA could look it up and find out exactly how many times he was tested. Eric Reed could claim that he was tested seven times, but if the NFL and their records doesn't determine that he was tested seven times, then they could prove their point. A lot of times we try to get to, all right, this is my opinion against that person's opinion. When you have facts, use them. You'll find out who the most tested player in regards to drugs was over the course of the last National Football League season. Was it Eric Reed? Did Eric Reed lead? If, he, if he's got a football card on the back, does it say he leads the league in italics? With the little diamond next to him if it's a tie? Maybe you should make it an actual stat. How many times were each player tested for drugs over the course of the National Football League season? We live in a world where we're obsessed with stats, right? When it comes to baseball, you know, comes to football. How many times was a player tested for drugs over the course of the season? And who led the league? Was it Eric Reed? Because if you hear Eric Reed, listen to Eric Reed and his lawyers, you figure he led that category by a mile. Is that Pro Bowl worthy? Most times drug tested over the course of a regular season? Obviously, if he's being targeted, it's a serious matter. But if he's not being targeted, it's time for the NFL to stand up and prove that he's not being targeted. It's that simple. 
Just a reminder that Castrol provides maximum protection against viscosity and thermal breakdown. This is the Past Ball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. Just a reminder, you're interested in being part of the program. I'll throw the number out one more time and I'll say it a little slow in case anybody does want to call in. 732-364-3598. And get your call right up here. Obviously, if it's somebody from spam, you know, we'll let the phone ring. But the next thing I wanted to talk about is something that does have a little more to do with race. And not that Eric Reed, if he's being targeted because he protested the national anthem and he's being drug tested more and he's having a hard time getting a job and he's not being judged by the talent that he has and his ability to help a pro football team is not an issue. But there's an unfortunate story going out from the city of Detroit of a young 13-year-old kid, and his name is Ty Corbett. He happens to be black. He's from the Detroit area. He's playing hockey. And apparently he is receiving several different type of racial taunts, not just by opposing players, but by parents that are in that area. And unfortunately, in a year of 2019, we still live in a day and age where people are going to act that way. And you know what it does? It's unfortunate because, you know, obviously my skin is light. I can't be considered a person with dark skin. It makes me look bad. It makes anybody that looks like me or looks like that person that's throwing racial taunts and using words that should be forbidden from the English language makes everybody look bad. Now, should there be more to be done about this? Can the use of a word that should be forbidden to be used from the English language be actually considered a crime? Or should somebody be held accountable for using that word? Because there's no way that you could say that word and not have any racial undertones to it. And, you know, this kid's 13 years old. He's a black hockey player in the Detroit area. You know, we're talking about, you know, opening up the possibility and making sure that no matter what it is that you look like, whatever it is that your difference is, you have the chance to play any sport that you want. And if you're, you're a black kid that happens to love hockey, you should have just as much of an opportunity as a white person that loves hockey. Anybody that disagrees with that, you should be you should have to explain the issues that you have with race. Now, for this kid to be out there, and sure, he's competitive. I'm sure he is. He he may taunt the opposition just as much as the opposition taunts him. And there's things that happen over the course of a physical hockey game that you say, hey. Not all of it is racially motivated. You got an opposition on one side, you got players on, on another, and they're going at it, they want to win the game. They're making a lot of contact. There's going to be a lot of trash talk. Now, if there is some things that shouldn't be said, maybe some vulgar comments that are made between the players, I do think it's one thing. But when you got parents that are screaming words that should be forbidden from the English language, from the stands, at a black hockey player, something should be done about that. And I'm not talking about violence. I'm not talking about going out there and that father and saying that gets, you know, the heck beaten out of him by 12 people in the parking lot after the game. But there should be 
some repercussions for making statements like that. Because we live in a world, once again, where everybody wants an opportunity. And everybody should have an opportunity. If you're an American citizen in this country, you should have the same possibilities as anybody that may look a little different than you. So this is the part that bothers me because you got a kid, he's 13 years old, he's in the Detroit area, he's playing hockey. He shouldn't have to deal with racial slurs coming from opponent's parents. If that's the case, somebody needs to step up and hold these parents accountable for what it is that they're saying. This is the famous Budweiser beer. We know of no brand produced by any other brewer that costs so much to brew and age. Our exclusive Beachwood Aging produces a taste, a smoothness, and drinkability you will find in no beer at any cost. So, flipping over and continuing to talk about different sports at different times, we spoke a little hockey, and of course it was not NHL hockey, so if that's what you're looking for, apparently, you may be a little disappointed, and if you're disappointed, let me know how disappointed it is that you are. Now, the New York Yankees made a trade a couple years ago for Oakland Athletics starting pitcher Sonny Gray. And at the time, I looked at that trade and I thought it could be a very good deal for the Yankees. You're looking at a pitcher that had a track record of pitching in a postseason with the Oakland Athletics, a couple big performances against the likes of the Detroit Tigers and Justin Verlander in deciding games. So I thought what the Yankees had given up in that trade, James Caprillion, um, Dustin Fowler, Jorge Mateo, very good prospects, but it was the price that you had to pay if you were looking to bring in a pitcher that could lead your rotation or be a solid top three in your rotation. <coughs> and the Yankees, where they're set up, obviously, their expectations are they're supposed to win every single year. So you make that trade, you add a pitcher that not only are you getting them for the end or the rest of the 2016 season or 17 season, you're also getting him under contract for the years of 2018 and 2019. So I thought it was a good deal for the Yankees. Obviously one that was very much proven wrong compared probably to the likes of the New York Yankees acquiring Ed Whitson from the San Diego Padres in the 1980s. Sometimes you got a pitcher who does pitch well in a particular environment and organization in front of a crowd and for a different team, comes to a city like New York, and just, for whatever reason, can't put it together. Sonny Gray's home and road splits last year were very drastic. He did look like a fish out of water pitching home games at Yankee Stadium. Sometimes, when you're not performing well and fans choose to boo you, which is their prerogative, their honest right that they have rooting for a particular sports team, when, when they do that, it could impact somebody in a bad way, and it obviously did with Sonny Gray. General Manager Brian Cashman was very specific when he was talking about Sonny Gray's future with the New York Yankees, saying, "Oh, you know, to not to mince words, as we hit what is probably the two-thirds point of the passball show today. That's the cuckoo clock, the reminder, the whole thing." So Brian Cashman essentially assinuates that Sonny Gray is going to be traded. He's probably better off pitching for another team and not the New York Yankees. Maybe he's not made for New York. Now here's where I get into a little bit of an issue. This is the part of it in which I don't like. The expectations because the Yankees 
paid such a high price. And, you know, we'll find out in a couple of years. You know, James Caprillion had Tommy John surgery. He's working his way back. Maybe he'll make his major league debut. Dustin Fowler has debuted already for the Oakland Athletics. You're looking at the likes of Jorge Mateo, who I think is going to get a chance to play in the major league. So we'll see what happens. We'll see if that deal in terms of history, will be looked back on as a bad deal for the New York Yankees. Now, you're thinking about, all right, Sonny Gray is what he is, and these young players could potentially be what they could be. They just haven't gotten there yet. So that's something we'll table for another discussion. The thought being, and I'm sure Brian Cashman has a responsibility to do this because he made a trade for Sonny Gray. He didn't necessarily get back what he was expecting. He didn't necessarily get back what was the equivalent of the three players that ended up going to the Oakland Athletics. So he has a responsibility to make sure that if he deals Sonny Gray with one year left of team control, that he gets back something as close to what he gave up for Sonny Gray. Now, I don't mind him trying, but there can't be a team in Major League Baseball that would stoop to that level and do what he says. And I'm sure that's the same reason that Sonny Gray hasn't been traded from the New York Yankees at this point. Talk could have been C.C. Sabathia signed to finish off his career with the New York Yankees for one more season in the 2019 MLB season and year. And ended up going through a major procedure with his heart. That could impact his ability to pitch. That could impact his ability to continue his playing career. So because of that, maybe you're holding on to Sonny Gray because of that. I think that's a bunch of horseshit. The issue being... The Yankees couldn't get what they wanted for Sonny Gray, so that's why they're still holding on to him right now. There's a couple teams that are in the mix, whether it's the Reds, maybe the Padres. You could look at some young teams that are expecting to take some legitimate steps coming into this season that would have some interest in Sonny Gray, but certainly would not have the same interest that they'd have in a Corey Kluber or a Noah Syndergaard. Let's understand that. And if you're a Yankee fan and you're wearing those Yankee blinders, that you're so biased towards your team that you don't think the rest of the sport exists outside of you and your interest, you're not understanding that right now. Sonny Gray has very minimal value, if any. And I think I'm being polite when I say that he has minimal value. Maybe a team could look and take a flyer on him and say, hey, if he goes out there and pitches 200 innings this season, maybe we could expect the results to be a little bit better than they were last year with the New York Yankees. But what team? Out of the other 29 teams in Major League Baseball, would give up top prospects for Sonny Gray. And you think about the top prospects that the Cincinnati Reds have, the likes of a Hunter Green, or a Nick Senzel, or uh, you know, I forgot the guy's first, uh, Taylor Trammell. Those are the top prospects that the Cincinnati Reds have right now. Would they be stupid enough to deal any one of those players to the New York Yankees for Sonny Gray? I mean, I think those players, if you were going to consider moving them, might be for the likes of a Noah Syndergaard, might be for the likes of a Corey Kluber, but certainly not for Sonny Gray. Because you know what? The positives of what you could gain if everything goes right are up against the negatives of what if this player is just simply not the same pitcher that he was five years ago. Pitchers are going to deteriorate over the course of their career. The chances of Sonny Gray going to pitch on that top level being a legitimate 200 innings, 210 strikeout pitcher, a 3-4, maybe 5-war pitcher, 
are probably not that existent anymore. So you, what you're looking for if you're a franchise that's going to make a trade with the New York Yankees for Sonny Gray is you want to get some usefulness. You might want to get 180 innings. You might want to get 30 starts from Sonny Gray. But the results, you're not probably not expecting him to perform at a Cy Young caliber ever again. So if that all is true, why are you going to give up top and elite prospects? The Yankees are going to have to come down, and they're going to have to come down very drastically in what their expectations are for this particular pitcher. It's time to get into the NFL picks as we're finishing up the program today. A um, little bit of a recap of the show as we're getting there right now. Um, we started out by talking about the NFL coaching situation and how I do believe that teams are looking foolishly and almost unreasonably, unreasonably when they're looking for their next head coach. And they expect, for whatever reason, the cohesion between their quarterback and their coach to be a total representation of what their franchise is going to be going forward. And you're going to see multiple teams with these choices for head coaches, whether it's Matt LaFleur, Freddie Kitchens, Cliff Kingsbury, Zach Taylor. You're going to see a lot of these teams be proven wrong. You got the situation with P.K. Subban, and I think he did a great job by you know, putting that video out for the poor kid in Detroit that's having to deal with the racial taunts. I hope this kid makes it to the NHL. I hope he becomes a star. I hope he becomes a representation of what the National Hockey League is going forward. You got Eric Reed and his lawsuit against the National Football League claiming that he was unfairly drug tested multiple times over the course of last year. If you want to change that, if you are in the NFL and the NFLPA and you feel like you have the right information in this situation, use it. Find out and have printed the actual amount of times that Eric Reed was tested during the course of last season. Put, put up a list of who the top players that were tested the most times over the course of the regular season according to your computer algorithm. The NFL has the information. If they're not going to supply it, then I have a question of whether or not they are telling the truth. Sonny Gray, Yankees, listen, they're going to have to trade him, but they may have to accept a lot less than what they gave to the Oakland Athletics in exchange for the pitcher. So as we move into the nobody's listening segment of the show, we're going to kind of combine that with our NFL picks as we're getting set for the regular uh, division round of the National Football League season. And you got some interesting games here. The first statement that I want to make about the NFL playoffs is we're getting ready. First game will be played Saturday. You got obviously the games going up into Sunday afternoon where the Philadelphia Eagles will be playing in New Orleans Saints. What we watch in the wild card round, you see a couple of good division winners, a couple of wild card teams that have good performances, and we start to get behind those teams. We start to say, wow, look. Look at how good the Indianapolis Colts looked last week. Look at how good the Los Angeles Chargers looked last week. And we start to give them, unfortunately, a little too much value when it comes into the next round. Sometimes we got to remind ourselves that the teams that finish with the top two seeds in the National Football League season in a conference, they're there for a reason. They get home field advantage. 
And all of a sudden, you end up seeing different type of games that you saw in a week before. Now, as a fan, what did you just watch? You watched Indianapolis beat Houston. You watched Dallas beat Seattle. You watched the Chargers beat the Baltimore Ravens. You watched the Philadelphia Eagles with a last second and uh, help of Cody Parkey beating the Chicago Bears. It's good football you saw. But something that gets forgotten are the teams that had the first round buys. So as we get into the particulars of these coming up, upcoming games, celebrating a good week, um, uh, going 3-1. and one. The only game we lost was Dallas because of the points. I had Dallas. They won by two. The spread was two and a half. So it cost me some good money and a chance to have a really good week. But as we get into it and ready for our picks this week, we're going to start out with the likes of the Indianapolis Colts traveling to Kansas City to face the Chiefs. And if I've already foreshadowed what it is that I'm going to do or the direction I'm going to go with my picks, you may not have to listen to the rest of the show, but the Chiefs, obviously the ability to score some points. There's no question that their offense is going to be looked at as one of the more feared in the National Football League. Indianapolis can play Dina. And that's one of the things that hasn't been spoken about as much. Obviously, their offensive line and the protection of Andrew Luck leading to Marlon Mack kind of going off over the last couple weeks. And there's obviously some comfort that you see with that team. They're coached very well by Frank Reich. I think they're going to give the Chiefs a fight. But traveling to Arrowhead against a team that's expected to do some damage. The Chiefs are expected to represent the AFC in the Super Bowl. Andy Reid is looked at as a guy that can't win the big game. He's given the tools to do it this year. But the one thing that bothers the people that are predicting games is the fact that Kansas City Chiefs defense is just not that good. And it isn't. It's unfortunate. You want that defense to perform a little better. You think about them and the likes of the Los Angeles Rams having that Monday night game where all those points were scored. And you think that's pretty symbolic of what the Kansas City Chiefs and their defense is. And I'm sure there's going to be discussions and practice over the course of this week. There's going to be some locker room talk with the Kansas City Chiefs defenders. The expectation that they should be performing better than they are. I believe in that. And I think the Chiefs will come out on top. Give me the Chiefs minus five and a half at home against the Indianapolis Colts. Saturday evening, you got the Dallas Cowboys traveling to Los Angeles to face the Los Angeles Rams. And the one thing that stands out pretty similarly to what I said about the Los Angeles Chargers, is that the Rams don't necessarily have themselves a home field advantage. It's not like when they go play home, they got thousands and thousands of fans that are filled up their stadium in support of their team. There's a lot of people that come from all different areas of the region. There are St. Louis fans that supported the team when it was in St. Louis. There's a lot of people in Los Angeles that just have their allegiance somewhere else and could care less about a team that was just transplanted from St. Louis to Los Angeles, pretty similar to the way they feel about the Los Angeles Chargers being there coming from San Diego. So that's something that, unfortunately, the Rams don't have when they're playing their games on their home field. And the Dallas Cowboys, I'm believing in their defense. I think their defense can go out there and make a difference. You saw what they did on that Thursday night game playing at home against the New Orleans Saints. So I think if they could come up with a 
diabolical enough scheme to hold back the New Orleans Saints, I think they could hold back the Los Angeles Rams. The Rams have been struggling over the last couple weeks. The injury to Cooper Cup has seemed to impact them. Todd Gurley hasn't been healthy over the last couple weeks, and I think that's a big deal. He comes back, he's going to be healthy enough to play, but how limited is he going to be? Is he going to be able to be the Todd Gurley that was the number one fantasy player throughout the National Football League season? It's going to be interesting to see. But the one thing that I'm banking on, the one thing that I believe can happen here is I think the Dallas Cowboys and their defense can keep this game close enough. And I look at the seven-point spread, and I wouldn't be surprised if the Rams won this by like four points or three points or had the ball down the stretch as the game's going on and is able to just run out the clock. I wouldn't be shocked if the Cowboys won this game outright. So give me Dallas plus seven at Los Angeles without the Rams having a home field advantage against the Rams. The other L.A. team is traveling to New England. And this is a game that, for me, I felt was really interesting. And I saw it on so many different levels. Because if you looked at the betting lines as they were getting close this week, you're looking at the point spread. You're also looking at the money line as it's shifting. And you know you kind of feel intrigued to want to believe, to want to put money on the Los Angeles Chargers. And the Los Angeles Chargers have had a good season. And if you're looking at a season or an opportunity for them to make that run and get that Super Bowl, Phillip Rivers finally getting it, this could be the year to do it. And the New England Patriots, who, yeah, they won their, you know, the games that they win with their weak division, got themselves a first-round bye. But what popular conversion or conversation has is that the Patriots aren't what they were before. But I look at the line on this game. The Patriots are favorited by four. I don't think it's enough to be able to invest in the Chargers. I'm going to look at the track record of the New England Patriots that says in their division, the last eight years of making it to the divisional round with a first-round bye, they've won the last seven. Every one of them have been by considerable margins. And if I'm worried about when the New England Patriots are going to have to face their toughest challenge, I think it's going to be in the AFC Championship game as opposed to this week. So I'll put all that into the table. And once again, we overrate teams that we see in the wild card round, not giving enough respect to the teams that have the first round bye. Putting that all in there, give me the Pats minus four against the Los Angeles Chargers at home. Last game, this was the one that I think I was the most torn about because there's a story that's happening and we've seen it happen really over the course of the last calendar year, right? You look at the Philadelphia Eagles and barely getting by the Atlanta Falcons in a game that you probably expected the Falcons to win. Them getting themselves past, past the Minnesota Vikings in the NFC Championship game, coming off of the backdrop of what happened against the New Orleans Saints in that drastic moment at the end of the game where, you know, uh, Diggs ends up going for the touchdown, and they win in such an improbable fashion. And in the backdrop of the NFC Championship game, which was all set for the Minnesota Vikings to be the first team in the history of the Super Bowl to play a Super Bowl at home. And the Eagles got by that. And the Eagles got themselves by the New England Patriots and won themselves a the Super Bowl. You look at the wild card round and the fact that the Philadelphia Eagles 
looked like they were about to lose to the Chicago Bears. Cody Parkey misses a kick. Game's over. Eagles move on. Obviously, you're feeling the momentum. If you're a Philadelphia Eagles fan, you're saying, hey, this is about to happen again. Carson Wentz sits out the first couple games because of his, his ACL injury. Nick Foles comes in. Wentz comes back. He gets hurt again. Foles is running the offense. Obviously, there's cohesion with the quarterback in that team. In spite of all of those reasons, I think the New Orleans Saints are the team with the chip on their shoulder this week. They're, I'm sure they're tired of people saying, hey, they can't win the big game. Now, could there be a miracle? Sure. But I'm going against my initial intuition, which would be to say that the Saints are favored by too much. And I'm actually going to take the Saints and the points. Give me the Saints minus eight at home against the Philadelphia Eagles. NFL picks are already up on JohnPielli.com. Give me the, the Chiefs minus five and a half at home against Indianapolis. Dallas plus seven at Los Angeles against the Rams. The Patriots minus four against the Los Angeles Chargers at home. And the New Orleans Saints minus eight at home against the Philadelphia Eagles. So, you know, I do want to thank everybody for tuning in to the show this week. This is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPLA.com. Hope you get to enjoy your NFL. Obviously, hot stove and baseball. you got some moves going on. Um, I expect some more action to be this weekend. It looks like we may be finally coming to the end of the Bryce Harper saga. Media outlets in Philadelphia are reporting that Bryce Harper is set to sign a deal with the Philadelphia Eagles this Saturday. Now, if for some reason that's not true, you're going to have to find a culprit of who started this and kind of go after their credibility a little bit. Manny Machado expected to sign. He was expected to sign before Harper. So maybe this weekend will be finally when we see some of these top free agents come off the board. You got the NBA. Um, obviously, you know, you look at a team like Toronto, Milwaukee in the East. Uh, how about the Denver Nuggets? team with the best record in the Western Conference. A team that probably could have been a playoff team or could have been expected to make the playoffs. Are they the best team in the Western Conference? Probably don't feel that at that point, but you can make some comparisons last year to the Houston Rockets, who are a very good team in their own right, and ended up taking the Golden State Warriors to the seventh game of the Western Conference Finals, and were the superior team in regards to record over the course of the regular season. We'll talk some more NBA next week. God bless you, and as always, I'll see you on the other side.